immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Hello, and welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, episode 48. Bjorn, how are you? I'm pretty good. I'm busy as usual, but it's been pretty good. Awesome. Home, as everybody else. <laughs> and here in London, it's proper winter. Um, as I can see through my window right now, the, the roof's covered in snow, the road's covered in snow, a very unusual vista for, for these parts of the world, for sure. Um, so I'm kind of enjoying that. So it's a bit of a nostalgia satisfaction from back in the day when I was growing up in a northern country. How's weather in Denmark? Right now, it's really cold, minus five. It's not that bad, but minus five, it's kind of windy, uh, very humid. So the air is really feels like minus 10, 15. So... My morning runs are very cold. We've got a really special, interesting announcement today, and it's about Patreon. We've launched our formal Patreon page on patreon.com forward slash immersive audio podcast. And uh, just a couple of things to say. If you really enjoy the podcast and you would like to show your support, please consider becoming a patron. Not only you are supporting us, but you will also get some special access to bonus content and much more. And I would really encourage you to go on our page. The links will be available in the podcast show notes and check out what's in store. And uh, as time progresses, we'll be adding more levels of extra content and options. So watch this space. And we really appreciate that. So beyond, let's talk about some news. Some might say a lot has happened. Uh, some might say not a lot has happened. I'm just going to talk about a couple of things that I found quite interesting. So firstly, Magic Leap Resurrection. Uh, that was a, a rather sad story last year. Yeah, there's been an announcement that Magic Leap's next AR headset or mixed reality headset is going to ship in Q4 2021, promising a larger field of view and more compact design. So to be precise, a second generation headset will be 50% smaller, 20% lighter, and with 100% larger field of view. That's quite fascinating. So yeah, um, not much else to add at uh, this point, but certainly something to be worth keeping an eye on. And uh, on more practical side, I wanted to mention that Dear Reality by Sennheiser have announced a new reiteration of the Orbit plugin, which is now called DVR Micro. Well, first of all, it's a completely free tool, very nice and generous. Those who have used the tool before are already familiar with those features, but um, just briefly for those who haven't come across or haven't really looked into it, it enables you to do binaural panning. So position mono and stereo sources in a 3D sound field. Also enables you to choose from several choices uh, of 3D binaural room reflections. It also features um, a focus control which defines the optimal balance between coloration and externalization. And uh, the new feature is some of the more exclusive functionality that has been offloaded from uh, DVR tools and added to this particular plugin, which is a high quality binaural HRTF rendering. I actually had a chance to use the plugin for some sketches and um, just trying this plugin in, in action. And it, it sounds pretty awesome. So. Yeah, go check it out and uh, definitely get uh, get your free copy. 
we'll make sure to include the link in the podcast show notes. Bjorn, any news from you? Just the other day, I was um, with this board. Uh, there was an online conference with um, ePulse, which is the new which is a new co-brand for Sennheiser gaming equipment. They used to have their own branch, but now they're called EPOS. Um, I was part of a part of a four people, four person panel where we would talk about the future of game audio. And one of the most more interesting things that they announced was wireless in-ear headphones for use on PCs for gaming, uh, which is quite, I mean, as an audiophile, if you look at it that way, then that might not be super optimal, but judging by the values and, and numbers that they have estimated, then this will bring you just as good audio on the fly, especially for mobile, just to as if you were wearing a proper out of over ear headset. So I think that's quite interesting. I mean, it's it's a very new take on it. But if mobile gaming and uh, cloud gaming and so on is going to be the next big thing, and you are going to be playing everywhere as games as a service then I guess wireless in-ear headphones could be a big deal. Our guest today, Andy Slater, is a Chicago-based media artist and disability advocate. He's the founder of Society of Visually Impaired Sound Artists and director of Sound, a side accessible field recording project. Andy, welcome. Thank you. Great to have you today. Andy, where did you grow up and how did you get into the audio industry? Can you share your full story, please? Sure. Uh, I grew up in Milford, Connecticut in the States, which is a small town outside of New Haven. And um, when I was about five years old, I was diagnosed with a uh, degenerative retinal disease called retinitis pigmentosa, um, RP for short. and um, that was about the time when I realized I was going to be visually impaired. Um, there was always a fear of, you know, going completely blind, which um, in my 46 years hasn't happened yet. Um, but it wasn't something that really started affecting me until I was maybe a teenager. Um, I was always creative in, in, in drawing and painting and doing all kinds of art. And then I realized that my vision has changed enough where I could no longer successfully, um, you know, create what I wanted. And so I kind of, you know, I, I tried to decide, uh, make a decision of how I could move forward with creating something that was, you know, art. And um, I ended up getting a Tascam Porta 7, you know, cassette for a track and started working with a bunch of appropriated media off the TV and the radio and sound effects, uh, records and stuff like that to kind of create this sort of collage stuff. I didn't know about this kind of like sound art or music concrete or any of that stuff at the time. I was like 16. Um, and then I started getting into things like uh, John Zorn and John Cage and, um, you know, like Morton Sabotnik and sort of accessible... Um, you know, practical stuff I could get out of the library, just weird music. And uh, listening to like Skinny Puppy and like groups that would use a lot of, um, you know, samples and, and weird sounds and kind of manipulate those sort of things into their music. And so I got very interested in this. Didn't necessarily know that there was a huge amount of um, work and artists in these vast catalogs of things like um, Pauline Oliveros or Stockhausen or any of that sort of thing. 
Um, but I was very intrigued with continuing to um, work with sound and, and, you know, and create in a, in, in a non-musical um, sense. Um, so I moved out to Chicago to go to the School of the Art Institute because they had a sound program there. Um, what was what I was really into was this sort of was this wall size modular synth. I think it was the Emu twenty five hundred and the Arp twenty six hundred, and you know, creating all this you know um, stuff with the modular synthesizers. And this was ninety five, and so I was really focused on that. But then through my education, I, I learned about composers like Alvin Lussier and Robert Ashley, and um, you know, stuff that I didn't necessarily know anything about before that. And I got really intrigued with, with, you know, this kind of, this kind of work. And so I started doing this kind of work. I had access to like a Marantz cassette recorder. I started doing field recordings of, you know, interesting sounds in my neighborhood, you know, things that were um, affecting me. Maybe I would consider like landmarks where I would know where I was if I heard the sound. Um, I wasn't using a cane at that point. It wasn't until about 10 years later where I uh, my vision had gotten to the point where I needed to use a cane to navigate, um, but I was still very interested in architecture and acoustics and stuff without really understanding any of that. So I was experimenting with that. And then the cassette medium for field recording kind of went away. You know, with the tape, if you put in like a Maxell XL2S and you crank the level, you know, you're not going to get that nasty sort of digital distortion. So not being able to really see the VU meter on the, uh, on the cassette deck wasn't that big of an issue. But then when like the DAT, the DAT recorder, the DAT man came out and all these other things where the, like the windows got smaller and smaller and smaller and the function buttons were just harder to differentiate, I kind of gave up on that. And I left school. I ended up going back in, in 2010, still really interested in field recording, but couldn't find like a, a way to do it um, successfully. Or, so I, I wasn't able to continue working with field recordings like I did in the 90s because things just hadn't got hadn't gotten accessible. In fact, they got worse with the, uh, you know, like the, the portable recorders, like the Zooms or, or, or Marantz or, or whatever, where you really had to scroll through all these menus and stuff like that. Um, so I started working more with uh, like sound installation and, um, you know, more, more with the synthesis and, and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, like radio, experimental radio and stuff. And then in 2015, I discovered that the Sure Motive app, which is the iOS recorder app, um, was accessible for me using the uh, the screen reader called VoiceOver that's native to all of the Macintosh, um, the iOS or the OS. And so I'm able to navigate through the whole the transport, change the levels, change the uh, you know the sample rate and bit rate and even control the patterns of the uh, of the microphone that the MV88, which is a, a multi-pattern uh, condenser. And so with that, I just started recording everything and I got really interested in the sound of my cane uh, interacting and interrupting spaces from like 50,000 square foot empty warehouses to just, you know, my street kind of like drifting through space and recording everything that... Um, everything I could and interact with architecture and that sort of thing. And so I found myself finally doing art, creating art that was no longer just informed by my visual impairment, but was kind of about 
uh, disability and the disabled body in space and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So through that, <clears throat> through kind of getting, you know, connected through more of the disability artist community, I ended up getting a number of opportunities, uh, disabled community. And, and, and outside of that, I started getting exhibitions and, and opportunities to perform and that sort of thing.
Can you share about immersive audio work that you've done so far? Um, specifically, can you talk about your involvement with Fair Worlds? I started working at Fair Worlds recently. I did an internship um, over the summer as part of my master's program at Northwestern in the Sound Arts and Industries program. And we started working on um, this app called Space Time Adventure Tour, which is this fun sort of a, a like geolocation uh, located app, kind of like the Niantic Pokemon Go sort of thing where um, you're in one specific place and there's a bunch of point of interest, points of interest and, and that sort of thing. And you go from one spot to the next to, you know, play the game and achieve, uh, you know, whatever the experience asks you to. And I was designing and I'm designing um, sounds for that. It's sort of a retro piece that, that is themed around the 1962 Seattle World's Fair. And so I was working a lot with, with designing sounds, um, sort of influenced by the sci-fi films and uh, TV around that era, like uh, Forbidden Planet and The Prisoner and stuff like that. So these sounds are, you know, things of like, you know, obtaining an object or, you know, completing a task and that sort of thing. Um, and then also working with creating sounds for like for beacons, like location beacons, somewhat similar to the Microsoft um, Soundscape, which is a wayfinding app for, um, you know, blind people navigating where you pin a position and based on where you are located, you know, to this pin, as you get closer, it gets louder. It's, um, you know, it's, it's um, spatialized. So if you have like the, you know, the head tracking headphones or whatever, um, you know, it, it will, it will follow you like that or you move the app around. And so you know where it is in position. So we're creating that as an accessibility um, feature, like access had been from the beginning, written into this app. And so I'm, I'm sound designing for that. And um, I've also done immersive stuff, um, ambisonic stuff for, uh, for the city of Chicago, the park district.
That's a perfect segue to our hot topic on this episode, which is accessible audio tech for visually impaired. So Andy, you said yourself, uh, there's a lot of knowledge to share about how blind and visually impaired people navigate recording and mixing world. There are a number of accessible options available. So can you talk us through that a little bit? And also, you mentioned a couple of companies that have been particularly helpful and, and ethical with their approach and uh, trying to make contribution to the community as well. Um, can you talk us through this existing ecosystem? So um, a blind person um, can use a technology called a screen reader, which will voice uh, text on the screen, um, help you navigate through um, you know, uh, apps or, or websites or whatever. Um, and sometimes nowadays could even use um, like object and image recognition. And so um, with apps like the SureMotive and the Apogee Meta Recorder, able to navigate throughout, you know, the majority of the app to get things, you know, recorded and, and, and stored and organized and things like that. So, you know, you, you can use the transport and um, mic level control, et cetera. And um, this screen reader is native to the iOS stuff. Um, so it's basically like, you know, any developer could add for it. Um, could could use it um, if they're if they're accessibility minded, and so um, you know those two companies have brought this world of field recording to us, um, where we don't have to have an assistant. You know, it's not like using one of those uh, the Zoom H sixes or anything like that, where you need somebody to help you. And so I reached out to both of those companies. Sure, sure is local here uh, outside Chicago, and I know some people that work there, and I I wanted to tell them how great the app was. Um, and so, you know, I did some, some beta testing for them and, and, and gave, you know, my feedback and then did the same thing with Apogee. When I got the Sennheiser Ambio binaural headset, I wanted to use that, um, with the meta recorder app just as, as well as I do, um, with the sure stuff. And so I reached out to them, asked them if there was any way that they could work with me to make it accessible. And they did, and they did a wonderful job doing so years and years of wanting to catch up and finally there um, because people took it seriously and, and listened to me and stuff. And, um, you know, I've reached out to other companies like um, Sound Devices who did not seem interested to making their Wingman app um, even accessible to be used as a transport or anything like that. Maybe it was, a, you know, a, not an understanding of what the technology is and, and how easy it may be. Um, you know, it took a personal meeting with a high up in the company for me to realize that I just cannot afford to drop two grand on uh, on that device if I was going to need to rely on somebody else. I really had my mind my 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 eyes set on one of the recorders, the 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 Mix Pre Six and the the Sennheiser uh, Ambisonic microphone. And so um, I decided to go with the Zoom H three, which is the you know the virtual three sixty recorder for a third of the price because the app, the transport app, um, iOS app is accessible. I could, uh, record playback, you know, do, do everything I wanted to on this, on this little machine. So it's like, these are the sort of workarounds that, um, you know, blind people have to uh, adapt to and, and kind of take the lead on. And just very briefly, and I'm sure a lot of people understand what it means, but just to reiterate in the most basic terms, when we say accessible in this specific context, what exactly it does or doesn't have. In this particular um, context, I'm able to use a transport 
record, playback, setting levels, and that sort of thing all through the app, which is connected Bluetooth um, to the H3. You can also change the um, the XY axis and all those sort of sort of things. So if you had the app and you were pressing the button, I basically can navigate through um, gestures, um, you know, swiping my finger to get to, you know, where that button is and, and hitting that. And so it's a you know it's it's accessible and I'm able to do it just like you are. And there's like a voice assistance that is kind of like Siri or um, I will show you. Are you able to hear that? So I just fly through this thing. Right. So it's it's obviously it's a, it's a sped up version of yes. communication system, but essentially with your hands you navigate through and you get the voice feedback in terms of where you're at within that application, and then you can make a decision from there. Exactly. And yeah. And so. Um, you know, you can navigate from button to button and containers and all these sort of things and headings depending on how you customize it. Um, and so once you get familiar with the app, then, you know, there's nothing there to stop you. And um, it hasn't stopped me. And so I do these record. That's part of my workflow is is using these recorders um, and then editing and composing in Pro Tools, which has been, um, you know, which is, I don't know, almost 100% accessible uh, to blind users um, by the use of something called flow tools, which is a set of macros and you know shortcut keys that are just um, you can control the mouse. Um, you can do all these uh, all these things like just go up and down your channel strip in a matter of seconds. Basically, just do anything that you could do if you're using the program. And so that's something where the creators of flow tools worked worked very closely with Avid. Avid takes this very seriously and understands that. Um, you know, there's a there's a big group of blind users, and we create. You know, we all got jobs doing this sort of thing. You know, it's 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 been a really positive experience knowing that uh, we can use this. I've been using the pro the program for like 25 years when I was able to like zoom in and stuff like that. But my workflow is just like you know amazingly fast. And Reaper also has its own um, accessibility extensions as well. Track list pop up. Neutron one audio track. Track list pop map app pair delete groups delay box track menu multi chip reverb pitch with delay delay AI R beep F H delay isotope isotope mod delay real super super tip tap AI R beep F H delay step isotope isotope real tape mover footer analog to press mover footer analog window low repeat window swarm warm echo warm slap warm echo FX in FX 8.8.1 drive in parameter 8889.10.10.1 out of 10.10.1 out of native plug no control off selected plug in settings select next setting fx in at 7.191 hertz high pass 7.7 .7. feedback in 8887 89.3 6.5 window delay menu multi channel plug dynamics pit with delay modulate harmonic Send MPSA1, press send and window, grunge, detect hollow base, wind hollow base 2, in your face bass 2, lot only base, lots of base. Bolt 1, 104, Blarney's Beanery. Warm drums, Blarney's Beanery. Window, delay, air, box track, on. On. Off. M -m 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 Minus 9.4 FX, on. 
Off. Minus 12 points. Off. Edit. Checked. Window. Edit mode. Cluster. Shuffle up 16 minutes. Start. 16 minutes. And press delete, then type end value. Press delete, then type end value. 9 minutes. Length. 16 minutes. Start. 9 minutes. Track list pop master one, math track list pop up, neutron one, audio menu interface, bus, plug in, no input, search ellipse interface, neutron one, output one two, stereo greater than out minus 20.8, peak, minus infinity, destination, sample rate, window. Forty five minutes, May one hundred milliseconds, nudge. Press delete, then type nudge value. 15 milliseconds. Nudge. 2 minutes 3 disk. Window. Bound source. Content selected. Stat modulars. Output. Add rub. Bound. Slash volume. Slap. Up. Bounds. Content selected. Stat modular source 1.6.21. Pro Tools busy. I just want to explore this from a different angle. Gaming, but as well as game development as in people who people with special needs who create content, but also people who consume content. So Bjorn, what, what do you know about this? Who's out there pioneering that kind of work? I don't know exactly who's who might be pioneering it, but I know that several of the more modern games have had blind modes or at least visually impaired modes. Um, the latest, uh, The Last of Us, had... Um, the option to basically scan your environment and get auditive feed feedback, which actually for um, for seeing people like myself from playing the game was even a big help to that. And I found it quite interesting how to be able to play the game just by listening. Um, so, but Andy, Andy, do you do you think that that they do enough, or is it good enough, or, or do you do they even understand? Do they understand the problem when they're trying to create these tools? Do you know? Yeah, you know, I think that Naughty Dog did. Um a really great job with the last of us um not only for the for the gamers that you know want that play the game but also for awareness in the industry um you know blind gamers have been trying to get this sort of like inclusion for years now and i think with the last of us um we have it and i tried it out it's really complicated um meaning that there's like so many things you can do so it's not really made plain um, for somebody like me who I'm, I'm really no longer an avid gamer um, because I haven't had these features. And then now it's like <laughs> so much. They did such a great job and they did a lot, uh, a great job for deaf and hard of hearing um, gamers as well. Um, but I think that there's so much to learn from through that and showing so many people what all of these options are you know, for colorblindness and, and, and low vision and things like that. Um, with The Last of Us, the one thing that I was bummed that they didn't have was audio description for the, you know, the cinematic uh, cutscenes and things like that, which didn't actually push forward the narrative of the story. But, you know, it, 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 it perpetuated this awareness, like the Game Awards 
had an accessibility award this year, um, which I thought was absolutely amazing. And they had an audio described feed of the award show too. So I think that more and more people are, you know, finding a way to make these things accessible through, you know, experimenting or whatever. But, you know, I guarantee that they all have um, blind game testers working alongside with them. And that's always helpful to have us involved in, you know, something that's for us. Yeah, because my, my worry was, of course, since since I'm not blind, so I don't know if if uh, if the help that they provide is good enough. But you hear so many situations uh, with with all good intent. A lot of these companies, they they really try their best to do it. But there's been so many situations where it's, say, a seeing person who with all good intent try to help the visually impaired person, um, where success is sometimes limited because of a simply a lack of understanding what would actually be the help. Um, I got the impression that The Last of Us did a great job, but I know some other games have done uh, other things like Gears of War, where it's possible to hear enemies. There's even a, a video of, of, of a blind guy um, play, playing, playing through the game where he actually completes several hordes of, of monsters, which I found super impressive. Um, are there are there other games that you know of that are actually doing like something really good about this? I, I the the Last of Us has has really been the one on my radar. Um, not only because it's amazing, but I can also critique it to no end. You know, there's audio games. There's some audio games made by sighted people that kind of miss the spot, but then there's a few that are made by blind people. But they're audio games, and it's you know kind of limited because creating those things as a blind person is, you know, is, is very, very hard depending on, you know, the programs you're using to create. Um, but you know, there's, there's options in Mario maker where you can use haptics and sort of, you know, in, in place these, you know, these sound markers and things like that to, to make a non-visual level. And so being able to customize and place these things yourself, um, you know, based on your your own experience and the way that you like to play is great. And I'd love to see more things like that. But really, it's it's still few and far between. Um, I feel that there's been a lot of accessibility um, made for people who are, are non-hearing, deaf or hard of hearing, um, than, you know, uh, a visually impaired audience. But, you know, I, I see that that, you know, may be changing. And I'd love to know more, you know, more examples of this stuff. I think there's so much that can be done, you know, coming up with, you know, the MPEG H um, and like the, the, the Sony 360 sound where you might be able to, you know, place an audio description part or these other sort of prompts somewhere else within, you know, the binaural field or the 360 field that could help you guide. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that can be done, you know, just through sound for navigation and things, I think, with, you know, this this tech that's you know, finally making it to a commercial market. Yeah, and uh, it would be quite curious to to know what the immersive audio community out there around the world is doing. Are there any interesting projects or initiatives? And I'm, I'm sure there are plenty. And, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about EBU webinar uh, where Fraunhofer were demonstrating MPEG-H offering tool and um, some interesting accessibility features. So there's, there's, there's plenty of out there. But yeah, it would be interesting to hear if any of our listeners are involved of any these type of projects or initiatives. And pl- please get in touch and uh, maybe get in touch with Andy if you have any ideas or if you need help, somebody who really understands how to navigate that world. 
Absolutely. I mean, you just need to bring us to the table. And um, like myself, um, being an artist and interested in sound and even being able to do sound design and, and that sort of thing, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, more doors open to people in my position to not only get in there from an accessibility, um, you know, situation and advise on that, but then also be part of, you know, the gameplay and the, and the sound design, you know, I'll sit and listen to my son playing games and just be amazed at the sound. And then also be like, oh, this sound here is really, you know, just in the way, um, you know, if it's like, if I were trying to play it, it would just be driving me out of my mind. Um, because, you know, a, a blind person uses their, their ears and stuff to navigate and things just kind of get in the way. So, you know, those things aren't, aren't thought of. And I, and I feel like whatever education a developer, you know, a, a game designer gets, you know, accessibility is not part of the curriculum, you know, and if they're, they're teaching themselves and, you know, and they're learning by experimenting and, and that sort of thing, um, then, you know, the awareness that it's even an option isn't out there. Yeah. I mean, there's so many nuances and, and things to just consider. And, and, you know, if a, if a developer makes something that's accessible, like I've found that, um, like brand loyalty in the blind community, especially for, you know, tech, um, is really strong. So, um, you know, you build it and it works then. Um, and as long as you don't <laughs> screw with it and, uh, you know, kind of wipe out, um, you know, it's accessibility, um, then we generally, you know, stick with it because why would we want to spend, you know, a whole bunch of time trying to figure something out? I absolutely know what you're talking about. And, you know, there's, there's like, you know, for, for web use, there are a set of standards. Um, and, you know, there's, there, there's things where it's like, this is what you should do um, to really make it, you know, navigable or, or accessible to somebody who's visually impaired. And I think that, you know, more and more these things become law, like using a kiosk, you know, it's like you need to have some kind of screen reader built into that. If I'm at Burger King and I want to order and I can't use, you know, the little touchscreen sort of thing or at the airport, you know, the, those that's becoming law. And I think it is in in the EU um, more so than America. Um, but, you know, it, it's just these things, the universal sort of design that, you know, will help us. It's like, let's say if, you know, if there was a cool game or a movie that came out and it wasn't made accessible and it was just, you know, or, or you know, like um, if, if I had told you like, oh, this game's great, but you can't play it because we didn't think about it or we didn't want to put in the effort to take accessibility um, seriously from the beginning, um, then, you know, how would you feel? You know, it's just kind of like inclusion is great. You know, I don't know what the market would be for blind gamers over time. You know, they, they you know, may consume enough and, you know, it would be really financially a great step to make your game um, accessible. But, um, you know, it's just just have some empathy and think about people that have been locked out of this stuff for years. You know, it's um, and it's like uh, audio description for film, like the movie Parasite came out and there was no audio description and that won the Oscar for Beck best picture and I can't experience that thing um and you know and there was the the director like famously said Americans need to get over their fear of subtitles or their laziness or whatever you know like whatever it was um and so he didn't want to do an English dub which means like oh well you know 
I won't be able to see it or, you know, um, experience it. So, you know, there's these things that it shouldn't be that hard. Um, you know, um, and it's like, I can't use, I can use pro tools, but I can't use Adobe premiere because there's absolutely nothing accessible built into that. And I can't use unity to design. I've, I've demoed a, um, a sound, um, based non-visual experience. Uh, I put that together with a, with a Chicago based, um, developer because I can't even access unity to just drop, you know, sound objects in. Um, and so it's just something where I guess it needs to be done from the beginning. I can't use max MSP and I've, I've spoken to, to cycling 74 a number of times and it's just kind of like the way the thing is designed. It's just, you can't put a fix on it. And since Ableton Live is modeled somewhat after Max, then it's kind of like that would never really be accessible either. So, I mean, I have alternatives and workarounds and stuff, but something like Max would be, you know, there's so many endless possibilities of things you can do with that. Um, but because of how it's designed, and it was designed many years ago um, where this accessibility tech wasn't really even, it wasn't used it wasn't widely used and it wasn't at all how it is today and so with you know with with xr the xr industries you know still being new and innovative and they coming up with all of these um you know new steps and, and ideas and just progressing rapidly with accessibility in mind from the creative side um as that grows and becomes more and more of a thing um then i can kind of you know being part of that industry just grow parallel with it. I can keep up um, as these things are implemented more, which, you know, is great because it's it's a new medium and, you know, I want to be part of it. If I'm not the only um, visually impaired person kind of working, you know, in this field and, and just, you know, beginning to, um, then there certainly aren't a lot of us. And there aren't a whole lot of like visually impaired artists that do the, you know, the same kind of work that I do because the tech hasn't always been there. And, you know, when you're given art education, um, you know, they have art education for the blind. They never talk about anything sonically. It's always trying to keep up with, you know, the sighted world and how they experience and appreciate art. So, you know, we need to have our own, you know, sort of experience that is either catered and curated for us or something that's universal for everybody that, you know, we can, you know, kind of jump on and, and really appreciate. Absolutely, that's really well said. And yeah, and just to kind of summarize what we've been talking about, a lot of people, again, see it as some kind of charity that they have to make a contribution towards. But in some cases, it's a legal requirement. In some cases, it's um, it's a consideration and it's a, you know, um, illustration of empathy and showing understanding. So there's a number of factors that are important and are in play. For this and you see that a lot um, especially with tech maybe tech that people don't understand um, there was the XR access symposium that I attended last year um, there were a lot of discussions on you know museum tours um, that you know you would go through an app you know and it would be geolocated so you'd go to some space and it would trigger like um, a description of you know what the work is um, and it would be placed spatially 
you know, in your headphones, um, you can access all the information. You can get a description. You can choose how it's described, whether it's described by an art historian, docent, or a kid, or that sort of thing. And so, like, those discussions are going on to be, you're not stuck with one kind of experience. You know, it's, 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 uh, you're not stuck with one kind of description. You know, there's always a learning curve when it comes to these sort of things. Um, so, you know, making it more comfortable um, you know, is, is, is important. And then like, you know, with 360 video, um, you know, if you're watching a live event or just something in 360 and you want to add audio description, where do you place the audio description? Do you have, you give the, you know, the moving the object around, you give that the option for the, uh, you know, the, the viewer. And then how do you do that? Uh, how do you build that interface? And, um, I've seen, you know, I've seen this stuff utilized in, in other, you know, uh, applications and things, but it's, it's like no one is really there yet with offering um, solutions to these, these problems. We're getting there. Um, people are talking about it and the discussions there. There are a lot of um, great people working, um, you know, to create this stuff. But um, for the most part, you know, those people that are creating this stuff aren't disabled, you know, and they may have this empathy, but they don't have the lived experience. You know, um, the symposium, the people that were disabled that spoke were basically game testers. And so it's kind of their consumers. And so, you know, I think that a lot of that needs to, to change and just, you know, just have this, you know, diversity of um, just different, you know, lived experiences and different ways of um, troubleshooting and problem solving and just creating, you know, using disability aesthetics um, towards the creation of these things. And, um, you know, like you said, it, it's tiny details, it's nuances, but then big picture, it's it's great for everybody. I know we've talked about a lot of things, but just once again, you know, if you were heard, what kind of things do you want to happen in order for problems that you deal in everyday kind of working life resolved or at least improved to an extent um for me on the, on the creative side um what i'd like to do is um see something like unity be made accessible for blind creators and kind of have this interface where it's not click and drag and i don't have to rely on coding um i don't have the patience to learn a skill like coding honestly and um you know i want to work autonomously so I don't have to, you know, necessarily uh, commission somebody and have to, you know, budget all the time for everything. And then, you know, working with Ambisonics and and, and and things like that in Pro Tools using the Facebook 360 um, suite, you can, you know, you can change all the parameters just by, you know, voice voice overing, VOing to the spot and changing the numbers and stuff. But you still can't control that little dot that you know you can automate and move around so if i was at a you know a multi-channel speaker installation and i wanted to do all this stuff and have all this movement i'm not able to you know map that to any kind of midi um, i would love some kind of interface where i can do that sort of thing and as there's more and more ambisonic and multi-channel sort of um, options coming on people creating this um you know filters and plugins and stuff um really consider how somebody who can't see it can access those sort of things, because that's one thing that like flow tools, macros, 
cannot really, uh, you know, I, I can't execute those moves, you know, using that. It's kind of like one of the boundaries that really sticks me. It's like, man, you know, I have this education. I know how to do all of this stuff. I just can't do it without getting somebody else to do it. And a lot of the times, you know, just even explaining what I need, um, you know, I'm pretty good at, um, you know, describing and, and, and making accommodations that I, that I request really plain and easy to understand. But when it comes to a creative sort of thing where I'm like, Hey, that sound, I want that in the corner. And, uh, as you get closer, I want it to pitch up. Then I want it to sound like a paper bag. You know, I have these, these ideas that are all just really, some of them are informed by like synesthesia. Some of them are informed just by placement and, and imaginary architecture. And that's always hard to communicate with somebody. Um, you know, especially somebody who may be a developer and, you know, a developer that didn't go to art school and that doesn't have the same kind of um, education or way of thinking as I do. So, yeah. There's no two ways about it. Like with any creative stuff, we just want to mess around with stuff sometimes. Yeah, I just want to mess around with stuff. It's really hard to kind of um, spell out as precise instruction that then somebody can execute because, you know, there's there's so many shades of variations of creative audio work. You want to be exploring that real time. So I have a little bit of sight where if I need to, I can zoom in um, to something like, say I need to use one of the isotope or waves plugins where um, if you're familiar with them, you know, they don't use the little factory preset drop down buttons. Um, if you save a preset or if you want to use just, you know, one of their own presets for something, um, you can't access them with voiceover. Um, you know, that, that little menu bar that they have above their plugin. Um, if you enter the plugin where you can control all the parameters of the plugin, you can do that in most cases, but you can't access that that little menu, that tiny little menu. And, um, you know, too many, you know, plugin developers are relying on that. And, you know, there's, there's, there's no real way to do it. So it's like, I might go and use one of the air plugins, um, or something that just comes stock instead of using this thing that I, you know, I paid for. Um, if I, if my eyes are you know, if my eyes are hurting that day or it's, it's hard for me to focus on zooming in and choosing something, then I'm just going to go with what I know. And, you know, I, I've been bullied before for <laughs> for using like the stock Pro Tools stuff. Like, why don't you just use the, you know, the, the this, you know, convolution reverb by blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I can't I can't access that, man. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of cool toys out there like the um, sound toy stuff where. I got to zoom in and it's really kind of unfortunate that that's the case. Anything click or drag or that's not part of this, you know, accessible sort of, um, you know, text realm. Um, I just throw my hands up and I'm like, forget it. You know, it's just a matter of pressing one damn little arrow thing um, and I can't do it. So that's, a, that's one of the reasons why I use, you know, like analog and modular synthesizers for a lot of, um, you know, for a lot of my design, because it's hands-on, I patch stuff in, there's knobs to turn, I know what it is um, just by touching it. But then getting into, uh, you know, those pesky little menu bars, um, it's just frustrating. And so that's something that just kills my workflow. It doesn't kill my imagination or my creativity, but, you know, it's something that um, 
you know, it hurts. <laughs> it's like, man, that thing is so cool. You know, just like with Max. And it's like, um, knowing that you can do something that, um, you'd be really excited about and, you know, you know, your confidence that it would be successful. Um, and then just not having that is, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes more than a bummer. And it's so easy to overlook those kind of things for pretty much everyone. And only when you really pause and think about it, actually think about it, that's when you realize how much of a problem that is. Andy, as we wrap up, um, I just wanted to ask you a question. Uh, obviously, you had a very unique journey. Um, you're still on your journey. You're still fighting for yourself and on behalf of others, trying to improve the technology and accessibility. Can you share one piece of advice that really helped you in your career? Don't sit down for anybody. And I think that that could apply to anybody in the world. But it's it's don't accept um, an answer that you know is phony and do your best to explain um, what your accommodations are and what you may need in order to do a job or create, you know, always know what that barrier is and do your best to explain it to somebody who has either treated it as an oversight or just wasn't aware that it was even a possibility. For anyone who wants to find out more about your work and your mission What's the best way to find out more and get in touch with you personally? You can visit my website at thisisandyslater.net and um, find out everything you want to know or maybe don't want to know about what I'm doing um, and contact me through there. Andy, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you uh, very much, Oliver, for giving me the chance to um, just share um, this story and talk about all the needs that my community have. And uh, hopefully some, some of your listeners will be intrigued enough to um, start implementing uh, those sort of things into their own practice. Before you go, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to let us know what you think about our show, please take the quick survey in this episode's description. It'll help us make the immersive audio podcast even better. We really appreciate your feedback. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell and Bjorn Jacobson. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott. Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit 1618digital.com slash immersive audio podcast to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. from the podcast Level with Emily Reese, and I interview people who make audio for games, mostly composers. Our newest episode features composer Gordy Habb about his music for Star Wars Squadrons, which is absolutely outstanding. 
You can find us at patreon.com slash level and levelwithemily.com. Hi, this is Michael Helms, host of the Location Sound Podcast. On episode 85, I spoke with production sound mixer and boom op, Chris Bell, based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We talk about working on the feature film Unearth, where he recorded location sound on set and did the post-audio work. Check out the latest episode. Hi, this is Christian from the Sound Effect Podcast. In our latest episode, you'll hear Sergio Diaz and Zach Sievers talk about their sound design and mixing work on Gold Lion winning feature film Nomadland. Check it out at soundeffect.com forward slash podcast. Hi all, this is Becky and Susan from the Sound Girls podcast, where we speak to audio professionals from all walks of life. Join us Tuesdays at 9 a.m. and listen to the amazing array of sound humans talk about how they got into the biz. And a few cool things, like roadie nicknames and fizzy water preferences. You can find the Sound Girls podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as our website, soundgirls.org. Hey everybody, this is Tim from Tone Menders. In our latest episode, we talk with four-time Oscar winner Richard King. He tells us about the ultra-complicated sound for Christopher Nolan's latest film, Tenant. We talk about creating interesting sound design for scenes happening in reverse, how to build cinematic body punches, and his thoughts on the controversy over the film's dialogue mix. Listen wherever you find podcasts or at ToneBendersPodcast.com. Hi everyone, this is Sam Hughes, host of the Sound Architect Podcast, where I interview audio professionals around the world about their projects, their careers, and their advice. I've spoken to some of the most amazing sound designers on the top games, TV shows, and movies of our time. Our guests also include some of the biggest composers of our generation and some of the most amazing voice actors I've ever spoken to. Catch the Sound Architect podcast wherever you listen to your podcast or at our website, www.thesoundarchitect.co.uk. See you there. In our modern lives, we spend so much time thinking about what things look like that we tend to forget about our incredible sense of hearing. That's where we come in. I'm Dallas Taylor, and I'm the host of 20,000 Hertz, a podcast that reveals the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. In each episode, we chase down the hidden backstory behind a famous sound or sonic phenomenon. We followed sound designer Ben Burt on his hunt for the sound effects of Star Wars. He was hiking and his backpack caught on a, a guy wire that was leading up to a radio tower. And he heard what sounded like a blaster sound. We found out that dinosaurs probably didn't sound anything like Jurassic Park. If we were around when T-Rex was around, we might feel these sounds of the largest dinosaurs more than we would hear them through our ears. We've tracked down the origins of a drum sample that's been used in hundreds of hip-hop and electronic songs. During that time, everybody had drum breaks. And we had been doing songs where Greg would play these drum beats. We've explored the challenges of interplanetary communication. It's pretty amazing to think that I could be on Mars and say, Houston, I have a problem. And it'll be 40 minutes before they get back and say, what's up? And we've revealed how the Netflix audio logo almost included the sound of a goat. For a while, we were stuck on that goat sound. I thought that would be a good time. (laughs) This year on 20,000 Hertz, we'll uncover the origins of even more iconic sounds. 
We'll also hear from a few surprise guests. In this run of Daffy, he's not the greedy money. Ooh, that's mine. Give that to me. We're bringing him back to the, uh, I'm Daffy. You know, Uh, we are all time travelers going one way. Subscribe to 20,000 Hertz wherever you get your podcasts. That's 20,000 Hertz spelled out without any numbers. Once you see our swirly purple icon, you'll know you're in the right place. And if you're already a fan of the show, tap the share button in your podcast player and post this trailer on Facebook or Twitter, or text it to someone directly who you think would love this show. 